Well, good morning again. I'm the pastor here. My name is Quentin. Welcome to Harvest. We are a, a pretty new church here in New Brighton. We launched January 21st, and, and if you're new with us, we really want to welcome you being here with us. And we treasure new people walking through the door. We're, we're about multiplying ourselves for the glory of God, and we want to see his name multiplied in Southeast Calgary. So thank you for being here. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, would you open that up to Colossians chapter 2? If you don't have a Bible, uh, we've got lots here. Put up your hand. Our ushers would love to give you a Bible. If you don't have a Bible or you just want a new Bible that you want at home, take that home uh, to be yours as well. We want God's all-sufficient, perfect, holy, inerrant word in your hand. Well, after an awesome uh, week last week of celebrating Christ's death and burial and resurrection through the Easter season, we're, we're now gathering together. We've been uh, walking through the, the epistle of the, the Colossians, Paul's letter to the, the church in Colossae. And uh, we just closed out the last time we gathered here, uh, chapter 1. And we were looking at verses 24 to 29 last time we were together, examining the faithfulness of Paul as he suffered for the gospel, as he suffered in his serving of the Lord. And we asked ourselves four questions last time we were, we were together regarding our own serving, our own serving the Lord. The first one was, am I joyfully suffering for the sake of the church? Second one was, am I urgently proclaiming the hope of the glory? Uh, third one was, am I faithfully committing to grow in maturity? And fourth, am I fervently striving in the strength of the gospel? Just some really good questions from, from last time we were together to be examining your life and your devotion to the Lord. And I love how Paul ended that last section. He said, in him, him, Jesus, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's why we're here this morning, for the gospel growing in maturity in Jesus Christ. Paul devoted his whole life to the church. He said, For this I toil, struggling with all the energy that, that he, Jesus, powerfully works within me. Fervent, powerful, selfless, struggling strength for the bride of Christ. And as Paul was, was struggling physically in prison, and laboring for the maturity of the church. Today, we're also going to see how he struggled with great concern for our health, for our health and safety as the church amidst dangerous times. The Colossian church was facing dangerous times and dangerous teaching. And we're not promised safety. We're promised hard times as a church. We're promised persecution. And, and we know that there will be those who may come in and, and try to divide the church. So like a doctor uh, prescribing a vaccine or an inoculation to protect a patient from a disease, so we see Paul here. We see him giving us um, some inoculation, as it were, for being a healthy church amidst hard times. And in that, we're going to see four prescriptions today, four prescriptions for standing firm in the face of danger for prescriptions that we need as, as a young church to go and get filled out and to be applying to our hearts if we, hope, if we hope to stand firm as a strong church amidst dangerous times. So starting in Colossians 2, verse 1. 
For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all those and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of the wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity yet again to open your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have spoken, that you have spoken to us through the prophets, through the apostles, and in these last days you have spoken to us through your Son, We thank you that it has been written down, that your Holy Spirit was active to preserve your word for all generations, and that it is always relevant to us. And so, Lord, we ask in that, that today you would apply this word to our heart, that the Holy Spirit would be active to be illuminating the text to us, showing us what you mean to say, and applying it deep to our heart so that we can be transformed into the image of God of Christ. So do your work today. Do the work that only you can do. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So the first point of our sermon this morning is we must encourage our hearts in the gospel. We must encourage our hearts in the gospel, starting in verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all those who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged I love how we get a glimpse into the pastoral heart of Paul here. He just previously told us how he toils and how he struggles for the transformation of the church. We see how concerned he is for the strength of the people in the face of dangerous times. We have to remember that Paul is writing from prison. He's imprisoned in Rome. And that he has heard of this coming strife in the church. He's heard of this false teaching that has been happening in the church. But all he can do is write. He is in prison. He can't come to their rescue. And so he writes to them with apostolic authority. So Paul must struggle and he must fight for the people from a distance through his words and through prayer. And he wants the church to know how great a struggle he has for them. The word struggle comes from the Greek word agonizo, which is where we get our English word agonize, to agonize. Paul was agonizing for the well-being and for the encouragement of the church. And we see here that it's not just Colossae that he's concerned about. He mentions Laodicea, which is about 10 miles down the road from Colossae. And he says, as well as those who have not seen him face to face. So as it was in the early church, Um, There was no phones, there was no email, there was no iMessages or whatever else technology that we're using. Today they had letters, and they would have to, Paul would write a letter, and then that letter would be carried, and it would have been read to all the immediate churches in the area. And in that letter, Paul has great concern, great concern for the encouragement of these people. And as Paul struggles and, and agonizes over this encouragement, We see that that we need to be agonizing as well. We need to be concerned for the encouragement of 
the church because it's so easy to be discouraged. It's so easy to be discouraged. So let me ask you this morning, when it comes to hardships, when it comes to the struggles of life, when it comes to potential devastation and problems, whatever it may be, what's your natural inclination when it comes to these hard times? Are you, are you prone to delighting in the midst of the hard things, or are you prone to despair? Is it easier to be hopeless? Is it easier to be hopeful? Are we easily discouraged? So now I, I realize that God has created us all differently. Um, we all have different personalities. Uh, some of us are more prone to melancholy, to depression at times. And some people are just perpetually happy, it seems, right? But when the going gets really tough, it's very, very normal for us to be discouraged. Very normal for us to be more discouraged than we are encouraged. And so we see Paul here, Paul struggling and agonizing over the encouragement of God's people. And so you and I need to struggle, like Paul, struggle towards the encouragement of ourselves and the encouragement of each other. So although right now as a, as a young church, we're not really faced with false teachers in our church yet, no real threats to uh, dividing our church. Uh, but there are moments when we can experience seasons of doubt and despair. I'll just tell you, in the last year of our church planting this church over a year and a half, there's been, there's been some, some low times and some seasons of discouragement in my own life, just trying to to get the church off the ground, trying to connect with new people. If I have my mind in the wrong area, I can be discouraged. And I'm, I'm, a, I'm an optimistic kind of a guy. Like, I'm not a person that is prone to despair very often. I'm a pretty cheerful guy, but it happens. And in our, in our training center with, uh, with Harvest, our planting training center that we went to, they, they would tell us that planting a church will be the hardest thing you will ever do. And when you hear that, you're like, okay. You know, I hear that, but it's not until you've been in it for a while that you actually really feel how hard it is. It's a joy, but it has been hard. So we could be prone to despair at times. Uh, perhaps you've been inviting people to church and they don't come, right? And that's discouraging to you. It can be discouraging. Maybe you've been in churches in the past uh, where there's been major problems, divisions, Threats of falling apart. Maybe there's been marriages that have been falling apart and quarreling. Maybe there's been a lot of gossip and hurt. And that can happen in the church, and we can be very much discouraged. Whatever the case may be, although we haven't experienced much of that yet as a young church, uh, we know that it's coming, uh, that Satan hates the church, and he wants to destroy the church. And so Paul agonizes for the encouragement of the saints in the face of coming danger and strife. And so friends, this morning, with as much passion as the Lord gives us, we must encourage our hearts, encourage each other's hearts in the gospel. So the heart, in ancient Jewish culture, the heart was more than just your feelings. The heart was your center of your person, your personality, your thoughts. It was your innermost feelings. One commentator says, to have hearts encouraged, like Paul is saying here, to have your hearts encouraged 
is therefore a way of referring to the encouragement that touches the deepest part of our being and that affects every aspect of our person. And so it's a deep thing to encourage one another. You and I need to have our hearts deeply and authentically encouraged when it's so easy to be discouraged. And so how do we do this? How do we encourage one another facing hard times? Well, we witness much through Paul's life already, and, and the Bible teaches us lots about how to encourage one another. So I'm just going to offer uh, four uh, areas that we should be using to encourage one another. The first is this, pray for one another. Pray for one another. And this is more than just saying, I will pray for you. This means when somebody comes to you and they're telling you their, their issues and, and, their, and their despair, that you stop in that moment right now and you pray for them. How many times do we say that we're going to pray for somebody and, and we walk away and, and we never do it? So encourage each other by, by praying for one another, whether that's in the, the Starbucks lineup or, or in Safeway or when you see another Christian brother or somebody in the world struggling, stop and pray for them. Beseech the Father on their behalf right there. Show them that you believe and pray to the Lord who answers prayer. Second, counsel one another. Counsel one another. Now, we can all carefully listen to one another. Remember, when you're counseling somebody, you're just hearing their heart. Make sure that you're listening, and then, and then point each other to the Word. We all have God's Word. Psalm 119.24 says, Your testimonies, God's Word, your testimonies are my delight, and they are my counselors. God's Word is our only hope. It is sufficient for life and godliness. Proverbs 25.11 says, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in pictures of silver. And so we speak the truth and love to one another. We counsel one another. We give each other's God's word to encourage one another. Number three, point one another to Christ. Paul just finished saying previously, him we proclaim, Christ we proclaim. And we need to proclaim Christ to one another, which is proclaiming the gospel that Christ has won, that he is resurrected from the grave, and he offers salvation, and he offers ongoing help by his Spirit. And you and I need to hear the gospel over and over and over again. We see that in Paul, offering the gospel over and over and over again. The gospel doesn't start with your entrance to the kingdom. It continues to teach you and promise and guide you that Christ Jesus is your only hope. So God gave us each other to remind one another of the gospel. Number four, struggle with one another. We're called to weep with those who weep. And so we do that. We, we mourn with those who mourn. We think of those in Saskatchewan today, mourning with them as well. And so for each other, be there for one another. Share in the struggle together. We see Paul sharing in the struggle from a distance. He loves the people in these churches. And so we need to help each other in the midst of the struggle. So those are just four ways that we can encourage one another. So friends, as we move in, uh, forward in, in the fight for the faith together, we are promised hard days ahead. We are. It goes in the territory of opening this word in the face of the world proclaiming them the love and the grace of Jesus, but also the truth, the truth that is in there and the truth that also divides. 
And we're going to face hard times because of that. And so we need to encourage one another, encourage our hearts in the gospel. And then the second prescription we see is found in these next five words. Being knit together in love. Being knit together in love. We must pursue unity with love. Being knit together in love. So by the time Paul was writing this letter, much damage may have occurred already in the church. The Colossian church was, was facing a, a, a troubling time with some false teachers. Uh, divisions may have been formed already. Gossip may have been abounding. Some would be talking of leaving, and some would be talking of taking over. Whatever the case may be, Paul answers the problem, this problem of disunity and division with the most powerful weapon of reconciliation. The most powerful rep- weapon of reconciliation. It's the very weapon that God wielded since the day we rebelled against him. The weapon of grace and love. It's not a weapon of mass destruction, but a, a weapon of mass reconciliation. Merciful, gracious, love, authentic love, agape love, humble, sacrificial, selfless, brotherly love. The same love modeled perfectly through Christ's life and his death and his burial and and resurrection. Love poured out, love extended to us through those who were undeserving. Love that covers a multitude of sins. Love that flows first from the, the fountainhead of God and flows into us and then spills over into the world and to each other. That book that you have in your hand right now, that is a book of sacrificial love. And God teaches us through his word to let love reign and rule in our hearts toward him. To let love reign towards our families and our friends and our church. To love our enemies. Jesus teaches in Matthew 5, 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. 1 Corinthians 16, 14, let all that you do be done in love. 1 Thessalonians 3, 12, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. In Philippians 2, 1 to 2, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. This unity we see coming together because of love being at the center. And so as Paul is agonizing, as he's agonizing over the encouragement of the church, he knows, and he's teaching here, that true selfless love will lead to our hearts being knitted together. Knitted together. Anybody here knit or crochet. Jackie, Sue, my wife was here. She, she loves to knit. Well, I grew up in a knitting home. Okay? I think I even, I even, as a one-armed guy, I even tried knitting as a young guy. My mom was a big knitter, and she still knits to this day, uh, whether that be a pair of socks or, or a sweater or slippers or a scarf. I remember that wherever my mom went, there was always this little knitting bag along the trail with her. Whether she was on a, on, a, on a road trip or on the plane, you could always hear her needles clicking together, producing something. 
She loved to knit. Her mother loved to knit. And they taught my wife how to knit. And when I think about knitting, I think about love, this, this love being poured out as you're making something for somebody, something handmade, something that requires time. Taking this, this useless ball of wool and looping it together hundreds and hundreds of times to make something useful, something that is useful and bound together and inseparable, being knit together in love. Sacrificial love leads to unity. And so as the church in Colossae and, and Laodicea were struggling in the, in the face of danger and division, Paul's prescription for standing firm is to strive for unity with love. And so again, friends, we are a young church. And there is love here. I think sometimes we're still in the honeymoon stage a little bit. We haven't really got our feet wet, haven't really bothered each other too much. There hasn't been much hurt or any division yet, and I pray that that's never the case. But the truth is, is that the church is messy. The church is messy. Where there is people, there will be issues. We will hurt each other. We will step on each other's toes. I will let you down. I may say something that hurts you. Friends, the church is not perfect. It will be perfect one day when we're with Christ. In fact, we may have somebody come through our doors one day who is divisive, somebody who Satan wants to use to tear this place down. He hates the fact that we have planted our flag here in southeast Calgary just wanting to open God's word and preach it. He hates that. Charles Spurgeon said, Satan always hates Christian fellowship. It is his policy to keep Christians apart. Anything which can divide saints from one another, he delights in. He attaches far more importance to godly intercourse than we do. Since union is strength, he does his best to promote separation. That's Satan's MO. He wants to divide this place. He wants to divide these people. He wants to tear down the testimony of Christ. And so we need to expect it and prepare for it. We have to remember that the greatest weapon to prepare for the struggle for unity is the same love that was poured out for us in Jesus Christ. And God has enabled us by his spirit to love one another. Jesus said in John 15, 9, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. John 15, 13, Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. That's true love. True love is sacrifice. It's true agape love. John 13, 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, so also are you to love one another. And this is really important. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love marks the unity and the strength of the church. And so our love for each other is a witness to the watching world that Christ lives among us. And our resulting unity makes us strong in the face of danger. And as Satan hates the unity of the church, Jesus loves the unity of the church that much more. So friends, let's be continually loving 
one another, pursuing unity through love together. And can I just tell you something, um, just to encourage you, uh, when I meet new people that visit our church, when they come through their doors, they experience love. I get feedback all the time that when they walk through the doors, our people are friendly and they meet them and, and they want to get to know them. So I want you to know that you're doing a great job in loving each other and loving newcomers. It's a witness of our fellowship with Christ. So I'm thankful for Christ at work in us, knitting us together in love and unity in the world season. And so let's keep pursuing love for one another. But let's even push beyond that. Let's love beyond our comfort zones. Let's pursue those who aren't like us. Let's love those who are maybe harder to love. One theologian said that a mark of a healthy church is unity, not uniformity. We don't all need to look the same. In fact, heaven's going to be full of people who look very different from one another, all different stages of life. So love the unlovable. Push yourself. Give yourself away for Christ. Let's love without limit. And as Paul says in Philippians 2, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, unity. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And so let me ask you this morning, who do you need to love better? Who do you need to love better today? Who do you need to love better tomorrow? Who have you been holding back your love from? Who is outside of your, your sphere of comfort that you need to breach that wall and love? Let us love one another. Perhaps you've had a run-in with somebody, somebody here, somebody in your family, somebody at work, whatever it is, you need to go and, and you're, as a Christian, you're the one that goes and loves them. Go and love them. So we must pursue unity with love if we want to stand firm in dangerous days. And so we must struggle like Paul to encourage our hearts in the gospel Strive for unity and love. And then next, we must ground our assurance in the truth. We must ground our assurance in the truth. As Paul was agonizing to have our hearts encouraged and to be united in love, he says, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Again, we see Paul's pastoral heart. He desires that encouragement to move forward in strength, to powerfully unify the church. And he centers the greatest strength of the church is found in the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He proclaims that the ultimate aim and protection of the church is reaching all the riches of full understanding and knowledge of God's mystery. Jesus Christ, in whom are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 
which ultimately brings us full assurance. Here again we see, as as Paul has been doing in chapter 1, using these words full and all, all the riches, full assurance, all the treasures. Remember that these teachers were were teaching a, a false teaching of some fuller experience outside of Jesus Christ. And so Paul again here confronts this error head on. In, the, in those times, in the, in the Greco-Roman world, uh, they were obsessed with knowledge, gnosis, and wisdom, Sophia. And Paul's answer to the searching heart is that these virtues can only be found in the person of Jesus Christ. And so the only answer for us, the only answer for the church facing pressure from the outside world is to hold even fast to our understanding of the gospel And inside of that, to grow in wisdom and to grow in our knowledge, to reach full knowledge. And these are held only and exclusively within the rich treasury of Jesus Christ himself as revealed in the scriptures. If the church has any hope of standing firm in the face of danger, she must ground her assurance with the truth. And so... That's the same with us this morning. If we have any hope of standing firm in the faith, we need to ground our assurance in the truth. This mystery, this gospel of Jesus Christ, this truth, truth that is found only in God's word. As I told you already, this book is a book of of love, and the object of that book is Jesus Christ. Christ. He is the center of love. He is the center of truth. He is the center of salvation. This whole book is truth that is focused on him. From the very beginning to the very end, Christ is at the center. The book is about him. Do you remember after Jesus rose from the grave? We were looking at Luke last week in the testimony of the resurrection. Well, after he rose from the grave, he appeared to two men. These men didn't recognize him as Jesus, and yet they told them about all the events that have happened, the, the crucifixion and, and the resurrection. And then Jesus responds to them in Luke 24, 25 to 27. He says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then in verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus is saying, this book is about me. This is all about me. This is the book of redemption. It's about Christ. So friends, this whole book is a book of redemption, and it's a book full of knowledge and wisdom. It's all about Christ. And Jesus is the fulfillment of all of it. As we look at the Old Testament, we see lots of books on wisdom. The Proverbs and the Psalms and Ecclesiastes. Jesus is the fulfillment of all knowledge and wisdom. Let's look back at Proverbs 2. You don't need to turn there. I think I have it on the screen. Proverbs 2, verses 1 to 6. Solomon writes to the sons of Israel. He says, My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, 
Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Wisdom, knowledge, insight, understanding. These are the ultimate pursuits of the faithful. And we still go to these sections today to learn about practical application of God's word. But ultimately, they have their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Paul teaches that the mystery of the gospel is Jesus. He'll be the one where you find full assurance. And in 1 Corinthians 1.30, he said that Jesus became to us wisdom. He is the fulfillment of all knowledge and wisdom. He is the center of all understanding. He is the center of truth. And that truth gives us strong assurance, knowing what we believe. In the face of a questioning, unbelieving world, we need to know what we believe. As a church, we desire to be Christ-centered. We desire to be centered on Jesus. And, and that's a word that gets tossed out pretty easily these days. We're a Christ-centered church, but what Christ-centered means is that everything, absolutely everything rises and falls on the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It means that He is our rock. He is our foundation. And in order to stand firm in the face of danger, our church needs to keep him at the very center. And that we know what we know to be true by opening God's word. So in our lives, in our church, and in the world, more than ever, we need to know what is true. We need to know what God's word teaches. And we need to apply this truth as wisdom in order to walk in him. And so Christianity is not a blind faith. It is a faith based on facts. It is a faith based on truth. We don't walk into this blindly. And because we know the truth, we can have full assurance, an unwavering resolve, full confidence as the arrows of the world are tossed at us. And so the greatest strength we have for defending ourselves is having our minds fully convinced and our hearts fully filled with the truth of the gospel. And so friends, are you struggling with assurance today? Do you wonder sometimes, is all of this really true? I believe the biggest source of, of struggling we have is as, of, as Christians and struggling with assurance is the fact that we don't struggle enough in the Scriptures. We don't go to the Word enough with, with our questions. Lord, what are you saying about this? Well, what about this? God, what are you showing me in your Word? Search the Scriptures. We don't consistently give our minds over to God's Word. In fact, many people who profess the name of Christ never open the Bible. Spend very little time in the wisdom and knowledge of Scripture. And then we wonder why when life gets hard or someone attacks our faith, we start to question. We start to wonder what we believe. Because God's Word isn't hidden in our heart. The facts of Scripture are not on our tongue. Perhaps we're struggling with our own issues. And we're doing this with an uninformed mind. The Bible has not saturated our mind and, and how we are to approach our own troubles, our own sin. So do you know what you believe? 
Are you sure that what you believe is the truth? Can you defend it? Are you strengthening your assurance with the gospel? Friends, we need to run to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Run to it day and night. The treasury and riches and knowledge of wisdom are brimming full in God's word. Full. And they're just ready for you to take it in. And so raise your view about what scripture is. Run to it as your all-sufficient truth. We must ground our assurance in the truth. And Paul closes this section by teaching, if we want to stand firm in the face of danger, we must stand firm in the faithfulness of Christ. We must stand firm in the faithfulness of Christ. He says, starting in verse 4, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So the Colossians, like, like I said, are facing this false teaching. They're, they're facing plausible arguments. There was a love for rhetoric in those days from the world around them. And these plausible arguments in their day were direct attacks, like we've already studied, on the deity and person of Jesus Christ. And these influences were, were coming from outside the church, but working their way into the fabric of the church, creating division. Disunity, danger. And so you can see even more of, of Paul's struggle here. So being far away from these churches, he's in prison, struggling for their health and safety, extremely concerned for, for the testimony of the church. And he says, though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit. So as Christians all around the world are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, we are all one church the church universal. We are united in Christ. And so Paul is reminding them that they are not alone. Even though he can't come to them, he is for them. He's basically saying, I stand with you and fight with you from a distance. And so the church at large, the universal church, is always under the attack of Satan. And we stand together against false teaching, teaching that threatens to destroy the church and Christ's witness in the world. And this problem is, is still alive and well today. Plausible arguments are all around us. And so what is a plausible argument? It's merely fine-sounding challenges to the truth, convincing ideologies, new perspectives. Always be wary of, of new. When somebody says, we've got a new perspective, be very careful with that. It may come from newcomers in the church, a persuasive speaker comes to town, and they're often regarded as an intellectual thinker, one who holds maybe to higher criticism. Their message is often very, very attractive. It's new, it's fresh, it's, it's edgy, and it's more acceptable to the world. So we, we Christians, we often get labeled as those who are not intellectual, right? Right? We're not the ones who, who know much. We're labeled as, as bigots, those who believe blindly and don't really study. Some within the church have fallen into the trap of trying to meet the world in the middle, compromising the truth for error. And it often starts really small. The compromise usually begins uh, to question small things, which then leads to larger things, start to question historic understandings of doctrine, 
people begin to question the truthfulness of Scripture. You know, they might say something like, well, the Bible is really good, it has some awesome moral lessons for us to follow, but, but there's some errors in there, and, and there's some things that we really can't believe. Uh, people start to, to question the harder things to understand. The, the historical foundations come into question. The roles of gender are getting confused, and, and uh, ideas about creation versus evolution start to slip in, and, and the reality of an eternal hell They start to be open to more truths from elsewhere, other world religions. They don't believe in an exclusivity of the gospel, and we may err on the side of universalism. What about all these other people in the world who don't know Jesus? They ask. They try to make it more palatable to the tongue, more acceptable. And who's at the very root of all that but Satan? He wants us to compromise. He desires that people would question the truth. From the very beginning in the garden, what did, what did uh, Satan say? He said, did God really say? That's his question. He wants us to be thinking like that. His message creeps in, often unnoticed, often very sneaky, starting to cause small cracks, appealing to our flesh until they become chasms that blow apart a church and the integrity of the church to the watching world. Plausible arguments. They're all around us. I'll give you one example. I don't know if you guys remember a, a, a guy by the name of Rob Bell. Well, if you don't, I'll tell you a little bit about him. About 15 years ago, Rob was a very uh, effective communicator. He was a pastor of Mars Hill Church in Michigan, not the Mars Hill in Washington. Uh, he was a key influencer in a new, a new movement called the Emerging Church. This was a movement that was questioning organized church, questioning historic understandings of the faith. They promoted dialogue and, and conversations rather than submitting to the sufficiency of Scripture. And so Rob Bell's church, uh, it grew very quickly. Many people would come. They loved some of these new ideas and these new understandings in the early 2000s uh, that his church was one of the fastest growing churches in America. And by 2011, his church grew to be about 11,000 people, and he was named one of the 100 most influential people in North America. So in all respects, it looked like God was blessing what he was doing. But the truth was this, Rob Bell's teaching was attracting thousands and reaching around the globe because it was rooted in plausible Arguments, persuasive speech, appealing to the heart of the culture at that time. In fact, Bell's teaching was very much turning away from the truth of Scripture. He came across as an intellectual thinker. Slowly but surely, he began teaching against the historical, literal approach to studying God's Word. He, he, he was saying that we should read the Bible literally rather than literally. So make sure that you're reading it with a, a good literal mind rather than looking at it as the literal truth. He said that the Bible is a library of evolutionary thought written to deepen our understanding of what it means to live an enlightened life. He began, he began questioning creation, claiming that the Jews made all of this up in order to uh, salve their, their thoughts about uh, the times. 
He claimed that the sacrificial system of the Old Testament was, was created to deal with fear and guilt that is common to all men. He even taught that Jesus didn't even have to come and die. And then he taught as hell, hell as revealed in Scripture doesn't exist. And he taught universalism, which if, if anybody just aspires to follow God, doesn't, they don't need to know Jesus, that they can come into eternity with him. And so many people followed him because they were compelled by his appeals to the flesh. That's what our hearts want, right? We don't want the truth naturally. So this is just one example of plausible-sounding arguments that sneak in and, and turn us away from the truth. And Paul reminds us that we need to hold fast to the sufficiency and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. As he suffers in prison, he suffers and agonizes over the flock being attacked. But through it all, he trusts God's sovereignty, which leads to joy as he hears of the firmness of the faith of these Christians in Colossae and Laodicea. He says, he is rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. These terms, good order and firmness in the Greek, come from a military concept, standing firm, standing strong in the face of danger. And as Christ is faithful, as Christ is faithful to build his church, he is faithful to protect his church. He is a faithful Lord, and our faith is rooted in him. It is a gift. And so I pray that that would be our story, that we would be a church that is known to be standing firm in our faith in Jesus Christ, that God would be rejoicing in our faithfulness, that we could stand firm in the face of danger as we stand firm in the faithfulness of Christ. So we need to be aware of false teaching. We need to be aware of plausible arguments, things that really appeal to our hearts. Our hope is to trust in this word, this book of old that never gets old, this book that is relevant from beginning to end, Trust in it, trust in the hope of the gospel that is to be found there. And let us put our faith in the Lord. We pray for, as we go forward as a church that we are standing firm. And so this morning we see that, that Paul was wanting to encourage us, laboring, agonizing, that we would stand firm. Encouraging our hearts with the gospel, pursuing unity with love, grounding our assurance in the truth, and standing firm in the faithfulness of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these, this small section of Scripture that has so much for us to, to know. We thank you that at the center of it is the knowledge and wisdom of Jesus Christ. Lord, our lives are busy. Our lives are distracting. But you are the one full of grace and mercy, full of knowledge and truth and wisdom that we need today. And if we hope to stand firm in this church, to stand firm in our lives, we need to keep you at the center. And so Lord, help us. Help us to understand that. Help us as we go throughout this next week that when we get up in the morning, and we see your Bible on our, on our shelves. 
that we would approach it differently and that we would search it as gold, that we would find you in it, that you would teach us and and give us knowledge and wisdom, giving us the strength and the resolve to stand. We pray that that would compel us to move forward throughout our week and the years ahead as a church. Make us strong. Help us to trust in you more. Help us to run to you more. Help us to encourage one another. Help us to love one another, pursuing unity in love. And help us to hold fast to our faith in Christ. We pray this in Christ's name.